Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, if you've been with us for quite some time, you know that I always take a moment to read the formal bio of our guest co-host, sometimes even against maybe their wishes, but I do this because I feel it's critically important for people to know the perspective, the experience, the credentials, the accolades in which our guest co-hosts show up to the conversation. So help me right now to welcome our guest co-host, um, Aisha Joseph, and here is her bio. Aisha and her pronouns are she, her, hers, is passionate about inclusion and equity, and she found her calling in the championing of rights of the marginalized. She believes that in order to make meaningful progress in the areas of racial and economic justice, cross-cultural listening, empathy, and understanding are key. And actions that lead to socioeconomic liberation of the historically and present-day oppressed are born out of uncomfortable yet necessary conversations. We're going to unpack that a little bit later. Aisha is an avid writer, a vocal online advocate as it pertains to diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism, and anti-Blackness. Aisha received her bachelor's degree in business administration from the City University of New York, York College. During her undergraduate studies, she was the recipient of several awards and scholarships, including Congressional Black Caucus Foundation's Emerging Leaders China Study Abroad Program. After graduating, she began her career as a C-suite executive assistant, supporting and advising senior executives, including CEOs and founders, across a span of industries, both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, including the beauty powerhouse Estee Lauder, Compelled by the tumultuous events in 2020, she pivoted to help organizations and individuals create inclusive and anti-racist spaces and mindsets as a DEI and anti-racism coach and consultant. Aisha is excitedly working on her first book. Maybe she'll share a little bit with us about what's inspired that book. But right now, I want you to take to the chat, go to the comment section if you're joining us via LinkedIn Live. And I want you to share whatever type of accolades or whatever affirmations to help us welcome our guest co-host today, Aisha Joseph. I am so glad to have you. Thank you for saying yes to our invitation. And I am thrilled to be in community with you today. And so welcome, Aisha. And so I'm going to jump into our first question because it is routine here. It's kind of tradition that after we read the bio before our guest co-host will greet us in any way that feels appropriate for them, that we ask that they please consider sharing with us something about yourself that we would not know from reading your bio or from reading your LinkedIn profile. So welcome, Aisha. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. White, for having me. I'm super thrilled to be here. Oh my gosh. I was like, could barely sleep last night. Um, I put myself out there a lot on social media. And so I've been like racking, I'm just like thinking right now, like racking my brain, trying to figure out what it is that people <laughs> do not know about me because they pretty much know almost everything. But I have to say, um, I do, and this is the, I guess the first time I'll say it have, will have said it publicly. I struggle with anxiety. And so I really appreciate your nod to disability pride month. And a lot of people, um, wouldn't know that they do not know that until now, if they're watching me have been followers for the last three years or so it's like, what, <laughs> but, uh, but yes, our, our mental health is really important. And that's one of the things that I personally, 
um, struggle with. And so, yeah, that's something that you, you definitely would not know or think about me from just looking at me or from any of my posts on, on LinkedIn. So it's a really personal, but I'm happy to share it. (laughs) We are honored that you have shared that information with this community. And I believe I've socialized this before from time to time. It doesn't come up often, but from time to time, I'm also a big advocate of mental, mental health. Um, And I too struggle from anxiety and so many people in my family and that I know in my circle and my network do as well. And so again, it's not something that we need to shy away from socializing around because it happens to so many of us. And so I appreciate your willingness to, um, to boldly share with this community. Okay. So we have lots that I want to talk about today. And I want to start first with some (laughs) elements that have surfaced into current news. And there's so much, especially so much related to this broad topic of DEI or the lack thereof, I should say, but Florida, 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 Florida. So this week, Aisha, we heard that Florida just approved new black history standards that includes noting enslaved people develop skills that could be applied for their personal benefit. I know, just let's, let's just all take a deep breath, right? Now. Right. Let's just all take a deep breath. Take a because, deep breath on that you know, one. <laughs> I know, it feels like it's been one thing after another, one thing after another. So when I read that this week, to be honest, I can't say that I was really surprised. It was just like, here we go again, here we go again. Right. So I just, you know, many people have been exposed to that news and I've seen a lot of chatter about it. You know, as someone who really cares deeply about anti-Blackness, anti-racism, I would just love to get your reaction to um, this latest Florida bless their hearts news. <laughs> bless their heart. Yeah, I'm I'm not shocked that that went through. What <laughs> I mean, it does what white supremacy always attempts to do is to make it seem that black people are nothing without white folks, right? Like that we have no skills, we have no, there's nothing inherently worthy or beautiful or just like important about us if it's not connected to the labor that we've put out. And so this is something that just continues to advance that narrative. I mean, like, what were we doing before slavery? Were we just like sitting around and like, just not doing anything? I mean, no, like we had professions, we, there was, I mean, even if it's not professions in the, the sense that we talk about today, right. But, but, um, you know, we had multiple skill sets. We were, I mean, just, I would say the um, kind of one of the at the forefront of science and physics and geniuses like we ruled we were kings and queens and so for someone to just have the audacity to say that our skill set and our worth came from being enslaved that is offensive in the highest of levels Um, and it's something that we should just reject vehemently because it continues to tether us to this idea that again black folks are nothing without white people and and we know that that is just not true so it's yeah definitely not true I rejected as well I think so many in this community of course rejected as well and so we're not going to spend any more energy there we're going to shift okay so the next 
thing that is finding its way into the conversations of late is this mass exodus all of a sudden um, of high profile DEI leaders and professionals um, that are a part of some really large brands. And so I'll just kind of um, read some of them that have just recently left their posts. And I want to just get your reactions to why do you think that's the case? And what should we be concerned about in doing as it relates to people that are quite respected that are leaving this work? And so among them are Disney's Chief Diversity Officer and Senior VP, LaTondra Newton. Uh, of course, Netflix Head of Inclusion and Strategy, Bernie Myers. We all know. Um, Warner Brothers Discovery SVP of DEI, Karen Horn, um, and EVP of Impact and Inclusion, Janelle English. And there's so many more. All of these, by the way, are women of color. Um, and it seems like each week there is an announcement of another individual that's leaving their post. And so, and for whatever reason, let me put that out there. You know, I, I don't I don't want to send the message that they're leaving on their own. I don't I don't know all the circumstances, but the fact that these right. individuals are no longer in these very high profile positions that help to serve as a model, right? In some regards, what are your thoughts about that? I don't think many people are gonna like my thoughts about this to be very honest. <laughs> um, okay, so how I feel about it, I think I don't wanna take away from the work that any of these women have done in their space. I, I don't wanna do that. Um, but I, I, I see it a couple ways, right? So like one, you know, I'm, I'm getting the sense that with all the Supreme court rulings that have came down, there could just be this sense that all of this work that I've put in and everything that I have been trying to achieve in this space, where, where am I really going to see any tangible difference? That's really going to move the needle forward for generations. Am I making an impact enough? Maybe it's been a time of just self-reflection about is what I'm doing enough to get Black people to where that we need to be if these systems keep shutting us down along with the pushback that I'm always receiving? I'm sure they're always receiving when they're in boardrooms and at their organization. And so it could just be like, you know what, enough is enough. I need to reevaluate my approach um, wow. and think about how, you know, we can actually maybe even shy away from the models that we've been using to kind of think about something more radical that we can do to implement change. That's one idea that I have about maybe why these are yeah. happening. Um, you know, to be quite frank, I am not a, I'm not a fan of a lot of the DEI work that is happening in these spaces. I mean, you have organizations for Google, for example, where the rate of, um, minorities, particularly Black individuals who are hired into the organization, they they move so slow and steadily at like these 1% increments. And so it's like, okay, one year it's like 3%, maybe the next two years it's like four. And then the next two years it's like six. And then at the end of the year, there's a diversity report, annual report that says, okay, we still have so much work to do. And so for me, I'm not impressed either way at the pace that we're going. And this is not to say this is not, again, to take away the work that these individuals are doing, but in my mind, if you're not going in and, and, and not, if you're not going in and acquiescing to the comfort levels and the timelines that these white individuals have placed on you and you're actually like, you know, yeah, trying to push things in a way that 
that our community needs, I really don't see the need for you to be there. And I'm just being quite frank. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I don't see the need beyond you getting a paycheck, like beyond able to say, okay, like I've implemented these processes or, you know, like our, again, just very kind of like, and we're going to get into this, I believe, but like very kind of surface level change yeah. that's mainly happening as opposed to like structural. And so in my opinion, a lot of them weren't needed there in the first place. And again, a lot of people are not going to like what I say, but this is, this is literally how I feel. I think the current state of DEI work right now is not enough. I think it is centered so much on what white folks are willing to give to us that it's become completely almost ineffective. So, yeah. So Aisha, I so appreciate your perspective. And I think that that is um, part of the criticism that of late has been amplified by a lot of audiences who are questioning the efficacy of DEI. Um, you know, there's they're calling it a distraction. They're saying it's not effective. And, and I believe that there are two camps of, of people, right? There are some who are really much on the side of, I am here to drive towards impact sustainable impact and change. And then there are others who are um, playing into whatever type of culture and system that the environment in which they do this work in will, will tolerate and allow them. And that's a hard place to be. And so, you know, one of the things that I often socialize around is that, especially when this topic has been um, surfacing in recent conversations about people leaving their post, is that I'm not here to shame, guilt, or judge those individuals because I don't know. I often talk about how it's up to each of us to know our triggers. It's up to each of us to know what kind of emotional capacity we have to drive towards change in whatever kind of environments. And and we have to make those decisions for ourselves. But I think generally speaking, it is something for us as a community of professionals to interrogate. Why is that? What can we do maybe collectively to help um, ease maybe some of those those burdens that practitioners are carrying that causes them to burn out and to become so fatigued to where maybe they leave or to become um, frustrated with the fact that there's so many blockers and barriers, right? And so, yeah. again, not something to fix, and there's really not a right or wrong. It's just something I believe that we need to continue to interrogate. And so I, I appreciate your candor and you and you bringing your perspective and your thoughts to, to that question. Okay, so I want to I want to talk about because um, one of the things that I read in your bio is that part of how you show up to this work is helping people to lean into the discomfort and and that to be effective, the uncomfortable yet necessary conversations have to happen, right? Yeah. And so I don't want to get into all the specifics of of the right and wrongs of of, of maybe some 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 discourse that has happened of late. You are very forthcoming in your social media and I think that the boldness in which you stand in your truth is something that a lot of people admire because not many of us do that. We mask, right? Or we, or we, or we break down. And, um, but I also believe that there is an important um, skill that as DEI practitioners, we have to have, and that is dialogue facilitation that is steeped and rooted in civil discourse. I bring this to the conversation because just recently I had the honor of um, 
facilitating a session with with a group of scholars and fellows through the Faith and Politics Institute. And if you if you aren't familiar, if this community is not familiar with the Faith and Politics Institute, I, I'm going to ask my team to drop a link into the chat because I, I want you to understand um, the context of of this group. But when we think about faith and politics, those are topics that are incredibly personal to each of us, and it it begs the question of why are we not as a society individually and then collectively doing more to help upskill people around how to have those difficult conversations right where there could be a level of discourse so my question for you is what do you find to be those important ingredients um as particularly as a dei practitioner to help ensure that you are that people in general as they are engaged in that type of dialogue they are they are open to to perspective taking. You know, Brene Brown talks a lot about perspective taking. And they are open to the civil discourse um, to make sure that the conversation just doesn't end. Because I believe that dialogue is important. So I just want to get your just general thoughts on, on that question. Yeah. So what makes for a successful dialogue where people can actually hear each other as opposed to being combative, right? And and I think that's an excellent question. I think there are always going to be folks who are combative and who will and it's 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 one of those things that you have to discern right so some people will come in just to kind of refute everything you say and not actually there to learn and I think that's one of the important things just first and foremost is knowing how do I identify when it's time to move on from a particular person in this conversation but back to your question I think one of the things that's so important is I think empathy, right? So like being able to yeah. step into someone else's shoes and understand that you, they grew up a different life than you have. And you have to understand that your experiences has shaped and filtered the way that you see and that you process in a way that is totally different from somebody else. And I yeah. think another element of that is curiosity. You have to be curious yeah. about people. Cause if you're not curious about people and why they think the way they think and how, you know, why they feel the way they feel, then you're really not trying to come to a place of understanding each other. You're trying to come to a place to get them to agree to where you agree about and, you know, and move them to your side. And so, and that's not really the goal. The goal is understanding so that maybe we both can sit back and see a different perspective on something. I know that I've been in conversations and people have challenged me, you know, not all the time, but challenged me in ways where it's like, oh, and I, and I say to them, that's a really great point. I haven't thought about that. Right. Like mm -hmm, my yeah. goal is not to totally just like throw, you know, whatever my ideas are out there for you to just mm -hmm. blindly mm -hmm. intake them, but it's for us to open up a, a respectful dialogue because when it gets disrespectful then I get on a whole nother level but <laughs> um I, I think those are really important I think compassion I think empathy I think curiosity about people and their backgrounds um you know those are all just the starting places for being willing to hear what someone else has to say because if I'm not interested I'm not listening and I'm just waiting for you to finish so I can come back yeah. with more of what I want to say and drill down into your head right so there you go yeah 
Yeah, that's the complete opposite of active listening, right? Just listening, waiting yeah. for your turn to kind of defend your point Absolutely. and your position. Yeah. yeah. And I think that part of um, the dialogue facilitation upskilling that I mentioned before has a lot to do with being that bridge builder, right? Um, so all the things that you shared, exercising empathy, exercising openness. And I love the fact that you brought up curiosity because that's one of our um, core values at NWC. Oh, I think that curiosity yeah. is such a great thread to yeah. keep the dialogue going because it makes yeah. us be forced to kind of want more, which means then we're in a questioning frame of mind, which means yeah. we're, we're listening to learn and not to just respond and react. Mm -hmm. um, and finding that common ground can be really important as well. Yeah. Now, Aisha, you are very vocal and we share our Christian belief. I am a devout Christian. My, oh. my faith is so incredibly important to me. It grounds me in everything that I do. And something that I often find um, um, challenging to navigate in some occasions is really just thinking about how do I, as a DEI practitioner, navigate being really strong in my Christian belief and faith, but also making sure that I am maintaining the, the true tenets of what DEI um, exists to do, which is you know, to serve the most marginalized, to make sure that we're giving voice to the voiceless. And so I want to just get your thoughts on how have you, as a Christian Black woman and also as a DEI you know, professional and practitioner, how do you navigate being strong in your Christian belief, but advocating for difference, even if that difference doesn't necessarily align with your value sets? Um, I think it's an important question for us to, to tackle. <laughs> That's a really important question and one that I've never been asked. So I definitely appreciate that. I would like to say that I will, I would never advocate for something that goes against the core tenets of who I am, because as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, my responsibility is to the kingdom of heaven first, right? So I have to put, put that out there. What I think a lot of people believe is just because I have a different value set than you do means that I don't appreciate your humanity for what it is and means that I can't advocate for your humanity, which is not true, right? So there may, may be things that I don't personally believe is is how one should operate. For example, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, right? But mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you that you can't, right? Like yeah. I'm not going to start a campaign to say, oh my gosh, like we should have no smoking in the office or alcohol, whatever, such a stupid example. But like my point being is that just because someone is firm in their belief system and who they are, that does not mean that it is contradictory to them wanting to see people being able to thrive in the fullness of who they are. Because yes. part of Christianity is the ability to choose for yourself, right? Jesus yes. didn't tell us to go ahead and convince people to be Christians. He said to, to preach the word and tell people about him. But he also says if they didn't want to listen, shake the dust off your feet and keep going. So it's mm -hmm. not my job to drag people into a position where they're trying to, where they're now mimicking my beliefs or thinking the way that I think, no, that's, that's not for me to do what is for me to do, which the Bible talks about is to love people. And in loving people, I think we have to understand that loving you does not mean I agree with you. Loving yeah. me, loving you does mean 
you know, I'm respectful, you know, I'm caring, I'm helpful when I can, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we have to agree. And that's one of the contentions that I have. It's a, which is a, it's in DEI, it's so interesting because people think, mm-hmm. oh, well, if you don't think the way that I think, then you're denying my humanity. That's a falsehood. I don't know who told you that. That is completely yeah. incorrect, right? So I can totally be for allowing you to express the full range of who you are, whatever that looks like. I'm hundred percent down for it because I believe in free will. I just don't ask me to say that I agree with what you're doing. That's a totally different conversation. Yeah, it really is. And um, I, I so appreciate that, Aisha. I One of the things that I often share in this community has probably heard it before is that acceptance doesn't always mean agreement, right? Exactly. And that speaks to what you shared about um, the belief that everyone has free will, you know, the freedom to choose. And that is that is centering humanity. And I do believe that that's part of the the Christian belief is centering humanity. And so it's a very complex topic. It is complex. (laughs) It is very complex, but it's one that um, I'm glad that we can engage in because, again, I think that having these difficult conversations is really important. And um, so I appreciate you um, leaning into that. Talk about your path, right? Because um, your background has been a lot in serving the needs of C-suite executives, right? And mm-hmm. then now you work directly into the space of DEI and anti-racism. So can you tell us a little bit about this transition, how it came to be exactly? Yes, absolutely. So... I'm going to try to make a very long story short. Okay. <laughs> I was working at an organization and I was so naive at the time. Like I was already aware of the, and it wasn't anything that I was taught by like my mom. Actually, no, I did kind of see behaviors from her and I'm, I, it's going to sound like I'm going all over the place, but like, follow me here. So like when I would grow up, I would hear my mom use her white voice. And I'd be like, mom, why do you like talk like that on the phone where you're talking to these people? And she's like, what are you talking about? No, I don't. And then when I would do it, she's like, Aisha, why do you sound like that? Like, as if she's like shaming me. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I learned it from you. So I I say that to start to say that I always knew that there was this expectation that I had to um, change parts of who I was to fit into the larger dominant culture. And I expected there to be pushbacks about how I wore my hair. And so I always got it straightened and blown out. And that's why it's not as long and pretty as it used to be because it's damaged. Um, But there are just things that I knew that I had to compromise on, right? And so uh, one time I was working at this organization and I'm like, okay, I know the drill, I know the game. But what shifted for me was that the energy that I usually would get from white people, like one person actually thinking that I was the server when I was just simply going to buy a drink. Um, mm-hmm. I started to receive that same kind of treatment from a black woman in C-suite. And that's yeah. when I said, I'm not dealing with this crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I can take it from other folks, but you're supposed to be in community with me or so I thought, right? Because we were both black women. Again, I was so naive at the time. And I'm just like, yeah, we're all rooting for everybody black and we got each other's back. And it's like, no, there are a lot of people invested in whiteness so much that you are nothing more than, it was pretty much, Aisha, you have to conform to what their expectations are because if not, then I look bad. Yeah, I didn't stay at that organization much long. It was 
I, I had to make the decision to leave. And from then I said, you know what? I'm never working in corporate again, which turned out to be a lie. But that was kind of what led me onto the journey of vocalizing everything that I have ever felt about corporate America. And I just started spilling it out on LinkedIn. And, you know, sure enough, people, I mean, I'm grateful that they cared enough to hear what I said and thought it was impactful that they just started reaching out and, you know, looking for help in terms of just like anti-racism training and like, you know, perspectives on diversity in the organization. And so that's really where um, the shift happened. (laughs) Wow. I appreciate you sharing that story. You know, um, I think that sometimes um, people assume that um, people of color, Black people specifically, that we are immune to centering whiteness. But we as a society have been conditioned to that. And so oftentimes it is unconscious, you know? And so I think calling that out um, so that even even we as Black people can be mindful of it to try to help break that is really critical. So I'm glad you brought that to the conversation. Um, so you actually, and, and I just want to bring up, because I know you and I both are in community with Dr. Janice Gassim and, you know, her oh book. Oh my gosh, is- she's the best. <laughs> yeah, I know. But her book is coming out in October. It really helps to break that down in many regards. And so I just want to give a shout out to her and it's called Decentering Whiteness in the Workplace. And so I hope that you all will consider getting that. Yes, um, I pre-ordered. Great. I'm just waiting on on mine. So I'm excited. Likewise, likewise, <laughs> likewise, likewise. <laughs> Um, and so what I want to talk about now is when you were working with those C-suite leaders, I would imagine that there were a lot of lessons and there were a lot of, and when I say lessons, I'm talking about things that um, maybe you gravitated to, to say, I like this leadership style. I like this philosophy. But then I would imagine that there were also some lessons that you said, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to do that. So maybe just share with this community, what are some of those lessons that may have, that may fall on both ends of the spectrum that you continue to hold and to govern yourself by? Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of on the, and are we talking specifically to DEI or just like leadership in general? I just well, just know. in general, yeah. In because general? to okay. me, I believe that le- inclusion and equity, it is leadership. So I want us to get right. to this point stop trying to put them in separate boxes. And so I love that. I love that. So they are connected. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. That's brilliant. Um, so one of the things that I, I would say I admire, um, is it's so interesting because it's, I feel like there's this dichotomy, right? So like I witnessed there be like this very people centric approach. And so, and some organizations, some CEOs, they will do whatever it takes. It's like the summer and like these little tiny like flies are just, it's so annoying. Sorry. <laughs> no, <you're fine. laughs> um, there is a personal cost that some CEOs will take on in order to keep their organizations going just so that the people under them have jobs. And so I love one of the things that I love in terms of leadership is taking on, it's not this idea of like family per se, but it's having this mindset that I am responsible for these 500, 2000, 5,000 people. And I need to do whatever I need to do to make sure that these people continue to have jobs. And it's just not about them building their empire, but they really have a sense of, um, I don't want to say ownership. I don't know if that's the right word, but like this care, this responsibility, like these are my people that I have to look out for. I need to keep the lights on because they, you know, um, need to make a living. And so I think 
that is one of the more beautiful kind of approaches to leadership that I have seen. And then of mm. course, on the other <laughs> end of the yeah. spectrum, right, which we've all probably have witnessed, there is this very diabolical, ruthless, like, I don't care what I have to do to, you that know, business. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. We need to get rid of a whole business unit. We need to fire, you know, the whole, uh, diversity function because like, we just don't have the line item budget for it right now. Like <laughs> they're right. a ruthless kind of setting of priorities. And I always say, which, you know, many people will say, if you follow the money, right, you'll see what people prioritizing what's most important yeah. to them, um, especially yeah. in terms of like DEI and budget cuts. And so I think that's one of the more, the, the examples that I would say it's, it's not something that I would ever want to um, engage in and be a part of, or even help facilitate. Like, I don't want to help facilitate, um, which a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, which some humans, some human source professionals do facilitate the systematic erasure and destruction of black and brown people and organizations to save face for the organization that's another thing that I've seen which I think is you know I know I understand people need to keep a job I I don't know what kind of lifestyle that they grew up in that they feel like that's okay you know again I'm not judging but it's just something that um I I've seen and don't don't want to be a part of it's it's a lesson that is just like no (laughs) yeah no, I, I understand that. We've had some um, inquiries about um, Dr. Janice's book that we referenced before. And so we have placed that link into the chat for those that are interested. Um, so Aisha, tough question probably, but I'm curious. Um, can the workforce aid in true liberation Black people? Why or why not? What are your thoughts? No, no, it can't. Because um, it just wasn't set up to be that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just, yeah. I mean, I feel like we're trying to fix a thing that was built for an totally different purpose. And so in my mind, the only thing there is to do is to tear it down and build a new system. Um, That's mainly how I feel. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about like how effective has DEI been in the last, you know, several decades um, or whatever. But I, I think it's, you know, when we talk, one of the things that I, which baffles me the most is, and I think this is like one of the points that I wanted to make is that we have black executives going Mm -hmm. to white executives. And this goes around this idea of like, not putting of again, like centering whiteness, right. When we talk about DEI initiatives. So Mm -hmm. we have black CDOs or brown CDOs. We're going to white folks. We're asking them for the money, right? So they have to sign off on how much they decide they want to give to the effort. They mm-hmm. have to sign off on the parameters and the boundaries of what they want DEI to look like. They yeah. get to dictate to us what's too far and what's not too far. And so mm-hmm. this whole system is set up around appeasing white executives and making sure that the work is palatable for them. Yeah. Um, which is hugely problematic. And then when you have businesses and when you, that operate on this framework that the bottom line is the most important, right? That goes against 
that just, it totally goes against like the principles of, of DEI, because at the end of the day, money is important, but it's not that it's not more important than I would say, you know, individuals mental health and their well being and how they're able to like operate and move inside of an organization. Um, so it's just, I, I don't think the way that our current workforce is set up is conducive to any type of real um, place to be liberatory for Black people to just be the full, you know, just to be yeah. themselves. And yeah, I, I don't think that's possible right now. Do you think the an increase in Black founders, Black entrepreneurship is maybe um, a way to solve for that in some regards? I do. I do. As long as those individuals have started the work on decolonizing themselves because all you're going to do is just take the models that you've learned from white people and whiteness and then replicate it into a black organization. And so you're going to have the same thing. Um, So I I think there's the distinction. It's possible, but it's possible if you're going into this already have shedding whiteness in a sense and, and learning what it means, who you are apart from that. Yeah, absolutely. Very important distinction. So thank you. So I'm going to be shifting in a little bit to take audience questions. And if you are interested in presenting some type of question to our guest co-host today, or maybe even just contributing with some commentary or resource, then you can let us know by using the raise hand feature here in Zoom. And that indicates to me that you're willing for us to spotlight you and invite you to unmute yourself and share. Or if you are here and you have a question, but you don't necessarily want to be um, highlighted, then you certainly can just place your question into the chat and we will make sure that it finds its way. And so while you're percolating on maybe some of those curiosities you're holding, I'm going to go to the next question, Aisha. And this is this deals with your the, the positioning that you take around your work in anti-Blackness. And um, I want to understand from your vantage point, how does anti-Blackness show up in non-Black marginalized groups in the workplace? And then what can we do to combat that? That's a really great question. I think I want to start with the end part of that question, what we can do to combat that is to under, is to help people understand, which we don't need to, it's not our responsibility, but for people to understand that their proximity to whiteness will only get them so far. And as soon as somebody has a problem with you, you're going to be their target. So you may be a buffer right now <laughs> and not seen as, you know, those blacks and, and, and given a position that is a little bit more higher on the totem pole, so to speak, but there is going to come a time where you will see that you are disposable, expendable, and not even looked at at the same way as um, their white colleagues and counterparts. We know that there is a cliff for Asian Americans, and I'm just going to use them as an example in this case, when it comes to leadership roles, like in tech, they're very overrepresented in, I would say, like, you know, entry level, maybe even sometimes middle management, but then there's a stop gap, right? And so Mm -hmm. that in itself should prove that, or should say, you know, no matter how hard that I try to buffer myself against being seen as other, as seen as a different perfect minority, I'm still not seen as good enough to get to where they are, right? So I think that realization will help to combat that. But to the first part of your questions, I think some of the ways it shows up is, you know, (laughs) um, I've had people 
speak to me in ways that they would never speak to a white person. Yeah. And I'm just like, and, and I, and I had to call them out on it. And then the person, they swear, they just, it was such an interesting story. They swear that they, they're not biased at all against black people. And I'm just like, no, I really, I, I think you need to kind of sit, sit with that mm-hmm. and rethink that. Um, but there was just such a hostility that I had not seen and that my colleagues had not seen from this particular person. And we both posed the question, Hey, if this was the white executive assistant or, you know, someone else, like, would you have responded? Would you have been so aggressive in your conversation mm-hmm. to the point where they were disrespectful? And so I think mm-hmm. non-Black people of color, and, and I hate saying people of color, but um, other marginalized groups who are not Black, I think that they take on whiteness so much to the fact that they think that they can police what we do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they can, um, again, treat us as if I would say treat us in a way where they expect that we are not going to push back or um, I don't want to say retaliate but kind of just like stand up for ourselves in a way I think a lot of times with non um, black people who are part of marginalized groups also do is they remain quiet when they see injustices because again they want to make sure that they maintain their space and their proximity to white individuals right so it's like oh yeah I I saw that happen and she said this but I'm I'm not gonna say anything because I don't want to (laughs) upset I don't want to upset folks and so I think they mimic the behaviors that they're seeing in the workplace Mm -hmm. um which you know, it's, there's just, there's just, there's so many different ways when you talk and talk about, like, I'll see sometimes a group of, um, let's just say Latinx individuals hovering, right. Or like the separation kind of, and it'll be, and it's not just them, it'll be them in a mix of like white colleagues. And then there'll be like, you know, an Asian American subset, but there'll also be a mixture of like white colleagues. And then, but it's like black people have been kind of like psychologically cut off from this group based on their, Oh my gosh, I don't know how to say it. Like you can feel as if like, you're not wanted in a sense. Oh yeah. So like oh, they yeah. Don't, yeah. Like, yeah, so we I, know I we don't belong for sure. Is that, we know we uh, don't belong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I feel like that's one of the ways it shows up as well. I know I've noticed like when, let's say if I'm in the office or other black individuals, we'll pull people in. We'll say, Hey, like, come sit with us. How are you? Like, you know, what are you up to? What are you working on the other way around? It doesn't go like that. They stay in their bubble. And so I think that's another way that they reinforce anti-black behaviors in the workspace by physically setting boundaries, um, with us. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so Tiki, I saw that your hand was raised and then you took it down. So I just want to give you, there you go. Okay. And then we also following um, Tiki, we do have a question that came in from one of our members of, of that's watching us LinkedIn live. And so welcome Tiki. I want to give you a chance to um, present your question. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been such a really rich and great conversation today. Um, you know, I work in the space of HR, but I'm also helping to um, create our DEI strategy. And 
there's a couple of things that you ladies talked about today. You know, I'm grateful to be at a company where folks are really, they seem and appear to be really invested in this work. But at the same time, you know, you talked about like decolonization and um, being bold about what's needed and not just kind of following along with kind of where, you know, your leaders may feel is needed um, and pushing kind of that envelope to go beyond that and really um, increasing those 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 percentages, right, in a way that is impactful. And I think a space that is really prevalent at any corporation is recruiting and hiring and bringing in diverse talent. And a lot of times you'll hear, you know, we get a lot of our talent through referrals. And obviously, if the majority of the company is white, those referrals are going to be white. And being able to encourage to go beyond that. And then, you know, hearing things like, well, we just don't see them. They're not out there. We can't find them. Um, and recruiting isn't necessarily um, my strong suit. We have a recruiting, you know, partner for that who struggles with trying to find diverse candidates. So just wanted to listen or hear your thoughts or recommendations around really making that kind of an impact so that we are the change we wanna see. But then once you get those folks in, how do you um, make that sustainable? How do you keep retention? How do you create a space that they actually will feel like they can grow and thrive in and want to continue to be there once you get them there? That's a great question. So to the latter point of your question, creating a space where people want to stay, to me, it starts with changing the makeup of your organization. I'm not going to want to stay, even if I was hired into the organization, if I continue to see a mainly all-white executive leadership team, I am going to feel like I am not wanted. If I continue to see predominantly white or you know um, SVP, VP, and above level, it, to me, that's a signal that I will never be able to advance. So there's different cues that the organization are putting out that's telling you, okay, you're welcome here for a bit, but you know, I really don't see you going beyond this particular level. So for me, I need the environment to be changed before I'm going to want to stay when I get in the door, because it's going to be a high rates of turnover. Like we, we see that. Um, to your earlier question, I think you, can you repeat it for me about like getting more talent? And I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, which makes sense that you want to see the change, right? And in order to see the change, we have to recruit it. And, you know, mm -hmm. this is my first time working in this particular industry. So I can't really, I don't have like a network of of diverse people to bring in. Mm -hmm. How do you encourage folks to look beyond you know, their network. And, you know, I, I hear things like, you know, I'm looking and I don't see it. There's not at, at certain levels, you know, if we're looking at the senior leadership level, well, they're not out there, you know, and for whatever reasons, because systematic racism never allowed us to break past that ceiling. So how do we, how do we find that talent out there? Yeah, I, I think we, like for me, it starts at the top. So the CEO, the I, I would even go further into the board, but the, the board and the CEO have to make decisions about even if they're putting into place 
I mean, this may sound a bit radical. I really haven't thought about it until just now popped into my head. If they have to put into place um, caps on length of services when you are at, you know, in the C-suite, which kind of sounds crazy, I'm sure to a lot of people on this call, but people will stay in positions for as long as they can. And so there's no room for anyone else to come in. But if the board is mandating and say, hey, like, every three years, you know, well, we need to have this percentage makeup in the executive suite office. Or, and if they have to do that by ways of like capping assignments and then promising them a role somewhere else, like, like, I really don't know. I haven't flushed it out of my head much, but I think it, it starts with these, the, it starts with the CEO being willing and the board being willing to go out and find executive leadership talent. Cause they are there like this doctor, white like there, there's so yeah, dr yeah. janice mm-hmm. like there's so many incredible black talent out there that could come in and take over an innumerable amount of roles in an organization and i think that is where the change is going to happen so me doing my best efforts to bring black people into an organization at an entry level i mean it's It's nice because in a way where it's like, you know, people are having jobs and they're getting exposed to certain things that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise, but then that reality matched up against a reality where for decades, you're seeing a monolithic board, there's a disconnect there. So the focus really shouldn't be, and the onus shouldn't be on you bringing in black talent. The onus should be on executive level individuals and the CEO saying, I need to diversify my leadership and trickle down from there like a bottom-up for me um approach is not going to work like it totally has to be top down and so they're making you feel like a failure right again putting the onus on the well, and not necessarily and not necessarily me you know but like yeah my, or a recruiting partner a recruiting part right who is who is white but does feel that's like, another part of the problem sorry yeah. go ahead <laughs> and it just, it just kind of does feel like there is a little bit of pressure to find people in spaces that she just quite frankly says she doesn't know how to or where to look uh, that but that <laughs> excuse doesn't fly I mean there's google there's linkedin there's she she could join African-American meetups, black professional meetups, like that excuse to me does not fly. People do what they want to do at the end of the day. So for her saying that she can't find it means she's not interested or invested in finding it because we know as black people, if our boss gives us an assignment, we don't go back and say, oh, we couldn't do it. We find a way to get it done. So when people are saying they're struggling with something and their hands are just like, oh my gosh, like I can't, that means they don't want to. So that's a different issue. It's not an issue about they can't find a talent. It goes to a heart issue about they don't want to find the talent and they're using that as an excuse to tell you that the talent is not out there and it's hard to find. Don't let people hoodwink you like that. That's no. (laughs) Yeah, I think- a lot of it has to do with a systems change whereby there are 
key practices and action items that those hiring managers, recruiters have to follow systematically. And if you follow those best practices systematically, you're going to eventually see some type of change in the in the in the pool of candidates. And so, um, you know, I think also that that's part of it. You know, is is it's just like you know Aisha is saying, if you don't know how to do something, you don't sit back and say I don't know how to do it. You figure it out. There's way too many resources, consultants, webinars, way too many resources that abound that can help you know bridge that gap. And so. Thank you so much, Shaki. I appreciate your question today. Um, I committed to this person on LinkedIn who um, has a question, so I'm going to try to squeeze one more in. And the question is this, Aisha, can you touch more on the concept of decolonizing oneself? I think it is incredibly important when leaders take on new roles, leave baggage behind, so to speak. How do we decolonize ourselves? Yes. Yeah, so there's many ways, and I'm sure there are scholars much brighter than me who have written books on the topic. But for me, I think one of the ways that we do that is start to interrogate, we start to look closely at our behavior when we're in predominantly white spaces and when we're not in predominantly white spaces, and then start to take note of what's changing and why it's changing. And then really go in and interrogate the thought process behind it, the feelings behind it, the emotions behind it. So take, for example, when we're code switching, right? If I'm talking a certain way at work than I do at home, I need to take a step back and say, why is this happening? And then when I get to the why is this happening, it's, you know, you start to just dig deeper and deeper and deeper down, you know, into like, okay, well, who told me that I needed to be this way in order to be successful? Where did I learn this? How do I feel about myself if I'm not code switching? Do I feel like I'm less of a person or I'm not worthy if I don't come to work with my hair straight? Why do I feel that way? Well, I've been told, you know, Black women are not beautiful when they're in there. You know what I mean? Like you have to start to go down the rabbit hole and be honest with yourself about why you are engaging in the behaviors that you are. And then you're going to start to replace those ugly, nasty, white supremative narratives with truth. And I think that is one of the way that we can start, in my mind, decolonizing um, ourselves and how we show up in spaces. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for the um, audience member that's joining us on LinkedIn for the question. And thank you to Kia also for your question. We are out of time. And I, I hate that because I know that we could probably go for another hour just digging deeper into this, this broad and really important topic. But I do want to thank you, Aisha. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing your perspective, your thoughts, your insights. Thank you to this podcast community for, for joining us as well. To Kia, I want to give you the final 30, 60 seconds to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate to you. What have I not asked you about that you want to leave this audience with oh um you said takia but i think you meant me <laughs> oh, i'm so sorry i did say takia <laughs> i'm looking at you both we still have you spotlighted takia uh, so yes, thank you no i think um i think Someone actually made a, a great point in the chat about you can still have structures and policies in place, but that may not be an end all solve. And then that goes into people knowing how to, I would say, um, get around a system, right? Because there's like, when we look at, um, oh gosh, how do I say it? When we look at slavery and then how it actually, there's a form of slavery today with like prison labor, you know, policies and things have changed, but the methods have be just become different and kind of morphed and, you know, 
like chameleon like to where you can't really see what's happening right under our nose. And so I think um, it goes while structure and policy is very important. I think it also goes back to a heart like the hearts and minds of people. If the hearts and minds of people aren't changed, there's no amount of policy in the world that's going to stop someone from trying to figure out a way around that policy by hiring the best lawyers that they can. <laughs> and uh, so one thing I, I do want to leave with people is that when we talk about DEI and the work that it takes in um, to push the change, I really want you to start thinking about the permission that you're seeking. You're seeking mm. permission from white executives to go against their best interests, right? To do something that, you know, for black and brown folks that they may not even really in their hearts want to do. We're asking people um, to give us humanity. And I think mm. that is the approach that I have rejected for so long. And I, and I want people to really start thinking about it. Why, why do you have to, you know, and, and I get it's a business, right? Like budgets have to be approved and all this stuff. But if I can't, as a black woman with all my expertise, come in and say, this is what we need to do without you chopping out the pieces that you think are unacceptable because we have to move at the pace that you think that we have to move at the pace of, is it a worthy endeavor to engage in? And I would yeah. proffer that the answer is no. And you need to move on and find a CEO that will actually let you take the reins and do what you're there to do without question. I don't want to say without question, right? But like, you get what I'm trying to say without pulling apart pieces that, oh, the organization may not be ready, or this is too progressive, or this is too, like, we need to start leaning on ourselves as opposed to, um, again, this word seeking permission to, to, for our humanity in these spaces that to me is just undignified. And so that's that's the last thing I just would, would like to leave with everyone. Aisha, we're so grateful for your time today. Thank you for leaving us with so much to interrogate and to, to digest and ponder and process. And um, we look forward to, to what's to come for you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank Have you. a great, safe weekend. <laughs> we'll see you hopefully next Friday for another session of Intentional Conversations podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you.